Evening. Thank you, Bernie. All right, so we're going to start tonight. Uh, appreciate you guys being here. You've been here all weekend. You've been blessed. Uh, Brooks, we, we're just going to do 40 minutes or so. We're all just going to ask him some questions, and we'll kind of dialogue, and then we'll take a break for five minutes, and then we'll head into our worship service about 5.45 or so, and uh, go to about 6.30, so be a little shortened tonight. Uh, thank you for being here, and I thought... Uh, we would just get to it so that we have more time. Brooks, it's been a delight to have you here. Thank it's been you. Very helpful. Thank you. Very good. So let's, if, if we go back to the beginning, you didn't share much of this this weekend, uh, but wondered, um, it's probably, my guess would be the same in your answer in some degree that people will ask me, they will say, especially younger pastors, they say, oh, it's got to be hard it's hard for kids to be pastor's kids. Or, and I say, ah, I mean, there's challenges, but there's also the greatest of blessings. They get mm. to see things on the front lines in ministry. They get to see answered prayer, unlike so many other people. They uh, get the love of all the people in the congregation. Uh, and um, so there are a lot of benefits as well as things that there can be some challenges for sure. But you grew up in the mission field and you raised a son in the mission field. Correct. So what were, looking back on your childhood, what were some of the things that you think, yeah, these were incredible blessings. Hmm. These were some of the challenges. And then what would your son say to that as well? Well, I'll speak for myself before I'll speak for my son. But uh, blessings, probably the chief blessing that brought me back to the mission field eventually, probably that little kernel in the back of my mind was watching the impact of the gospel on an unreached people group, getting to see the transformation. Um, being younger, I got there when I was two years old. My folks moved into a location, and then I went to boarding school uh, from six years old up until 18, but I would make three trips back throughout the years, or every year, back to the actual people group where they worked and getting to see the transformation, uh, the, the way that the gospel came in and how that changes things. The gospel does change cultures, but it changes them for the better. And to see the impact that that had, it, it stuck with me. It stuck with me my entire life and just thinking about what a way to use your life. Like the, the tropics take a toll on your body. There's all sorts of downsides, catching malaria, going through dengue a couple times and things like that. But what an incredible thing to say, this is what I gave my life for. And that, that was always in the back of my mind. And I think for even pastor's kids, it's remarkable to me how many pastors had a father that they looked up to and went, I see the downsides, but I also see the upsides. And sometimes the upsides don't get that much press. Yeah. We always hear the, the stories of disaster and pitfalls, but the upsides, they're steady and they're quieter, but they make an impact. And so that, right. that was my experience. And then my son, who's 20 years old. Well, hold on. So you, you were at boarding school. Correct. Which is where? Boarding school was up in the mountain area. So it was a higher elevation. Um, it was a lot easier living conditions and it was a commonwealth boarding school. So I have a deep 
love for the Commonwealth sports of cricket and rugby and a little bit of soccer in there. I saw your mask was a Chelsea mask. Very good. Uh -huh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's only Britishers and uh, missionary kids that have apparently, masks like that. Apparently. Yeah. We're the awkward ones. But uh -huh. rugby is rugby's quite the sport. So. so how often would you see your parents in growing up? What was the... I mean, how often were you together? Yeah, about, I would go up for about a two-month session and then fly back down to the location where they're at and back up for two and a half months, back again for about a month, and then a longer summer break. But there, it was, I mean, maybe the oddest way to grow up that I've heard of. Like, we would fly up on an airplane, and so you've got six kids packed into this little Cessna 206, and we're taking a two-hour plane flight. And the pilots know, I mean, the hardest price tag in missions by far for missionaries, for missionary kids is goodbyes. Goodbyes are very difficult, getting to, having to say goodbye quite a few times. But the pilots knew this, and so sometimes they would take us down to like treetop level and all this kind of stuff, or like take us up to 3,000 feet and then drop the plane over, and <laughs> your school books are literally just levitating and going to the back seat, and you're just going, Where, who else gets to do this? Yeah. And then somebody throws up, and it's all over. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. All right, and your son? Uh, my son had quite the upbringing. So you remember the sermon this morning, the you got to kill a pig to turn into a man. And so he was being groomed for that. And they killed little rodents, big old rats and things like that. And it was just, I mean, I never had a daughter, so I don't know how that would have gone, but it was a boy's life. Hunting crocodiles at night where they come out and their eyes, I hear deer, their eyes light up red at night. I know nothing about deer, but that's what I've heard from my cousins who live here, and they're like, I hit this deer, and I saw his eyes, or something like that. So crocodiles' eyes are the same way. They light up red at night, and going out on a canoe and learning how to walk in a canoe, women sit, men stand, so they throw spears, and it was just one of those things. Like, he comes back here. We had to tell him when he went into California public school, like, the stories, you want to keep those down. Like, people aren't going to believe you for a while. So it wasn't until right. his water polo team came over and they saw this line of crocodile heads in our garage where they would kill them and they'd give us the heads. And so him and I would glue the teeth back in and we brought them back to the United States. And there's like 30 crocodile heads. And like, this is real. It was kind of strange. But anyways, nice. he enjoyed it. So he did not do boarding school. He did not, no. Uh, the final year that we were there, when we were transitioning out of Yembe, we took three months out when the church was strong enough and we wanted to see how it would do by itself. Then we took six months out, went back in for two months, then we took an entire year out and we went to the boarding school, but we went with him. And he went through the boarding school, got to play some of the sports, see different things, and then that fourth year we went back, or we came back here to the United States. So. So families that are looking at, or young parents that are looking at, oh, we, we would think about the mission field, but it's really concerned for raising our child in such context. What would you say to them? Oh, man, it's, it's complex because every family is unique. Man, you never want to compare. You don't ever want to compare marriages. You don't ever want to compare kids. You don't ever want to compare parenting situations. It's a custom job every time. But the vast majority of young people who have children that are thinking this through, it is one of the biggest things. How will my child do over there? Are, my, are me and my wife able to do this? What will be the cost on the child? And I would just 
encourage uh, parents, just like we, we talked about, there is a downside to going over there. There's a tremendous upside to having kids that can manage different countries, not just their passport country, not just the country they were raised in, but they're actually, they're able to adjust. And that comes through 90% through good parenting, in my opinion. Mm. Parenting, parents that have their head screwed on that realize, okay, these are going to be the tough ones, and these are the ones that he or she is going to benefit the rest of their life. Part of the reason that I believe I got the job with the Dutch company and was able to rise through the ranks so well was my multicultural background, a yeah. able to work with different cultures, and it pays off in different ways. That wasn't the ultimate thrust, but it was just one of the secondary benefits of being raised among the English, the Irish, the Papua New Guineans, Americans from different states, all in this melting pot of a boarding school and having English dorm parents for an entire year and then having dorm parents from Australia and learning why they're so violently pro-cricket. Cricket's like as boring as watching grass grow. But anyways. Yeah. So uh, you met your wife. It's felt after you've been some time in Europe, you uh, then felt this impetus to go to the mission field. She did not grow up in the mission field. No. Uh, so this is would not only be a radical adjustment to go to Papua New Guinea, it would yeah. be radical never having been in the mission field at all before. True. A uh, couple women texted me today and said, what did she do there? We didn't hear about what she did. What did yeah. she do? She was just, women set the temperature of the home, whether that's in the United States or whether that's overseas. And we have this bark-walled house with corrugated aluminum roof, and my wife made it a home for us. She decided that the kitchen was going to be baby blue. I think that's the name of the color. She's going to hear this and she's going to give me grief later. Maybe it wasn't baby blue. It was some kind of, it wasn't dark blue. I know that. It was some lighter shade of blue. So then there was this particular kind of white, eggshell white, I think it was. And so she painted that. You did well from my vantage point. Yeah. She set it up and she brought memories. We, we had pictures and in the humidity over there, they would drip and drain. And so she learned how to laminate them and just how to make this house in the middle of the jungle homey so that when we would have guests come in, when the Yembis came in, like it was just someplace that was ours. And then her active participation in the gospel was she was one of the lead literacy teachers. And so teaching them how to read and write the breakthroughs when you're getting to the gospel, there's all this other stuff that you just don't have time to get into, but teaching people how to read and write for the first time and the way the Yembis viewed it, like the first course was kind of the rock star course, everybody that we thought would go fast so it would be good publicity for reading. Reading's a good thing, you can get through this. They did great and then the third and the fourth class were tougher. Then we had an all-female class and some of the females just took off and this was a, this was culture turning upside down in our world and seeing these things and her navigating that with the other ladies on the team and seeing these literate ladies come out. Now when a literacy class goes through, a pastor never reads the scripture in our church in Yembe Yembe. It's always the parishioners. And so he will write up on the blackboard who's going to read a scripture. And if there's a literacy class that just graduated, all of the literates have to get up and read. And so you have a lot of unbelievers that are coming. 
and they'll listen to these people that can newly read. And when we had the all-female literacy class that graduated, like the church was blown away. But being part of that process, and now the head of the entire literacy program for our people group is a single lady. So it was just, it was this integral part that doesn't get a lot of press, but it was so important because if they can't read, they can't understand the scriptures. Yes, absolutely. So when you guys were doing training, getting ready to go, did you have some sense that you had aptitudes for language before you started doing training? Or, I mean, see, I was telling some people today, I mean, nine years, right? Nine years? Uh, 13 from start to finish, eight okay. from the end of the gospel to the end of the discipleship time when we pulled out, but 13 in total, 2003 to 2016. Okay. Yeah, I think 13 years, you learned two languages, you wrote a written language for the first time, you translated the entire Bible, planted a church, raised up elders. I'm just wondering what I, I've done with my life after hearing that 13 years. Well, so did you have an aptitude for language? Did you? I, I think, like I said last night, at, maybe I didn't say it last night. Maybe it was at the Q&A, the third session yesterday. I'm maybe a slightly above average language learner. My wife is a better language learner. Like this is one of the things we teach at Radius. If all things are equal between men and women, women tend to learn languages faster because they just like to talk more. And if you like to talk, you're probably going to learn languages. That's not a put down. That's just one of the things that comes out. So my wife, who already has a little bit of aptitude and loves to chat, and it's just this painful thing, she can't communicate with these ladies. On maybe half the time that I got, she got just as far as I did. And so I had some aptitude, but God in His grace, He didn't have us go in there just as a family. We had two other families that were with us, and one of those guys, um, he was just, he was a rock star. He could subsist on three hours of sleep a night. He did a lot of the material, the written material that we had to have for the primers. He was in charge of the other books of the Bible that I didn't do. I did all the Pauline epistles. I did a handful, or three of the Gospels, and a couple other books. He did everything else. He did a lot of the Old Testament work. Even now, we're doing revisions. Um, we've, we did the New Testament, and we've done seven books of the Old Testament. We're still working on some of those books, and so he's still plugging away at those. And then God also gifted us with some ridiculously sharp YMBMBs. Mm -hmm. I mean, guys to where I could read an entire chapter of the book of Matthew, and then they're going to bring it back to me how they would say it better, just off of hearing it one time. I mean, it, it was just phenomenal. And even our translation consultants were like, this is unusually just a work of God and how he's positioned this team together. So it wasn't really on our back, so to speak. We just had a really good team around us. So with, I would assume it was very much an oral culture. They told stories. They mm -hmm. remembered their history through stories. Yep. Very so much. how did that impact your, your ministry there, especially as you're now making them illiterate people? Yeah. How, how does that affect you? Well, one of the things with oral cultures that is somewhat lost is that oral cultures do forget things or things get adjusted. And so one of the things we brought up was he told the story this way, you told the story this way. Look at the disparity of outcomes when you tell this story 
a different way. And how the paper, the Yembies don't have a word necessarily for read. They say the paper talks back. Mm -hmm. And so the paper always talks back the same. It never changes. Where he changes, or he changes, but the paper never changes. And so having them become the paper's trustworthy because the paper won't change overnight or the paper won't change because he's from a different clan and he wants the story to go a little bit different. But getting them to that point, we had to sit and listen to a lot of stories because their history, where the first man and woman came from, all passed down and there was about six or seven of the older men and women who had the keys to these stories. But then getting to Romans and why certain aspects of Romans we thought would be harder for them to swallow, that all of their ancestors had known before they even had the scriptures or the gospel that what they were doing is wrong. The Yembis had no problem with that. They had ritual really? cannibalism prior to this. Mm -hmm. They had stories of them cannibalizing other tribes and sitting around the fire, just an abbreviated version, eating and having tears coming down their face. Where did this come from? Why, did, why, why was this happening? And finally, Romans 1 starts putting these pieces together because they knew they were, the, they were made in the image of God and they knew what they were doing was wrong even before they had the Scriptures. Their mm. consciences were condemning them. It, it was amazing to see that. But anyways, back to the written culture. Now that they have the Word, to have them being able to go back and to straighten things out. Like what I said this morning, the, the canoe very rarely veers, and when it does, somebody calls people out. I love that. Love that. Uh, we're, my kids and I are talking about that on the, on the way here, about that. Uh, we're going to have to use that. Um, with that, though, related to that, the, the culture is also going to drastically change now that they're literate. True. So what are some of the things that you saw, you have seen as you're going back hmm. years since, and what has changed culturally as they become literate? Yeah, some of that, like you had the older men and women who were kind of the story keepers, the ones who were the keys to interpreting life events. It's brought some change in that now everyone who can read has access and is equal in the eyes of God. Um, what's the, what that's done for widows, what's that done for other people who are lower on the socioeconomic ladder, it's brought them up, but it's also brought clan leaders down. And mm. so it's had this equalizing effect. I'll tell you what, the gospel is this great equalizer and it brings some low and it brings some up. And to watch that, that's tremendous cultural upheaval. And then the first time, like the Yembis believed that if you went out and you hunted for pigs while your wife was pregnant, this was a big faux pas. You would lose your, you would lose your ability to kill a pig. And then if you committed the ultimate faux pas, faux pas, cultural violation, you gave your wife some of the pig meat. Now you are destined not to kill pigs for months, maybe years. And us, as we get through with the teaching and two months into it, one of the believers, his wife gets pregnant and he decides, there's only one God who made pigs and there's only one God who made humans. Why would he stop my wife from having something like this? And he gives his wife pig meat. 
and he's somehow able to kill a pig the next week. And I mean, just, oh, tearing the village in half. How is this possible? And so these things are starting to fall, and the women are getting healthier, and they're having babies, and they're living, and they're not getting as anemic, because now they're getting protein. And so all of this stuff is just happening within a three- to four-year span. It caused a lot of hardship. We almost had the teaching house burned down a few times. Uh, the first baptism was very rough. People got beat up. Some of our believers got beat up in that process. But I tell you what, for the ones that are sent out from URC that may go to context where the gospel has an impact and it has some resistance, you couldn't ask for a better purifying effect because it was too painful the first six or seven years to be a believer or to be on the fence. Mm -hmm. You were either all in yes. or you were all out, but it was too painful to ride the fence. And so you got to know really quickly who was actually going to be the ones that believed this by who showed up on Sunday. Yeah. Anyways. So what does it look like now as far as split within the, within the people group? I mean, what percentage would be professing Christians, and is there hostility? No. Once we made it up to about 40%, I mean, we had maybe 40 or 50 people for the first six to nine months of when we presented the gospel that we believe understood the gospel clearly, and we could see the fruit starting to bear in their life, and the rest, there was just no way they were going to do it. Things got harder from Cain and Abel than the law. The law was very difficult. Yeah, yeah. And then we got to Jesus Christ and the death, burial, and resurrection. It was just too much for a lot of people because it was turning your back on your ancestors' stories. Sure. And so now uh, the village, it's right around 50, maybe 55% of the village are of where we settled our believers. And so once we passed about the 40% threshold, a lot of the hostility ceased, but it brought new problems. The Yembis would call people who were coming now because Christianity was popular, skin Christians. And they go, we don't know what to do with these guys. On the outside, they say these things, but on the inside, from Monday to Saturday, they live like the other people. What do we do? This was a new phenomenon because mm -hmm. everybody who had been in before was in because they believed it to be true and it changed their life. So it was this new thing that they had to deal with. It was a different challenge. Yes. It's amazing how that appears everywhere mm. and very quickly within a generation. Mm. You know. uh, tell us, so the Bible gets translated. What are some of the the changes here a little bit. What are some of the books that will be on the top of the list for uh, translating into the language there so that they have additional resources to, to read for oh, man. theological knowledge? Uh, Pilgrim's Progress is in the works there. We just, I mean, I hope everyone in here has read Pilgrim's Progress or read it to your kids. Um, it's such a valuable resource. Pilgrim's Progress would be on the list. Probably not as many deep theological books. Like, they would have no idea. We did an overview of church history from the end of, well, the end of the first century, and then we walked through different key figures all the way up to modern time, and then the oldest man in the village when he was born, and just trying to, we had a bead, we had a a bead timeline that we stretched out, and we had every year from the end of the first century, or yeah, AD, all the way up to the present time, and then a big old fat 
blue bead for every hundred years, and so they could kind of visualize what it looked like. Mm-hmm. So we, we did a little bit of church history with that. Um, there, there would be maybe, we did a, it wouldn't be what we would call a systematic theology, but we did something to where we had every one of the elders and the elders in training. You would take baptism, you take the Lord's Supper, you take... Uh, sanctification, you take eschatology, and then write, and then we're going to hand it all around, and everybody's going to read it and critique it, and that got into a little booklet, and so that's kind of a a reader that every one of the elders in training has to read and understand and give a little bit of a defense of. And then there's some really good resources that's in the national language, because we see the future of the MB Church as minority languages start to reach, and they want to see how does our body fit in with other Christians? the national language is going to be big. So we buy select resources, some by Owen. Um, Owen's a little bit harder for our guys to digest. Harder for anybody to digest. Yeah, yeah. there's worth it. world history books, anything that broadens their worldview to help them see beyond Yembiembi, beyond Papua New Guinea, beyond just looking to greater countries, how this talk migrated up into... Asia Minor and Africa in the first three centuries, and just having that in their background is really helpful. So, a variety of things. And when you're training people, you often, you're recommending Banner of Truth books. I've often heard you do that, so why? What is it about Banner of Truth and books that are coming out of there? I find there's two kinds of people in relation to Banner of Truth. There's the kind of people who have been blessed and who just can't get enough of the Banner of Truth books, and there's people who haven't read them yet. And you're one or the other. And so I just, it was a, to my shame, I didn't know enough about the Banner. I say the Banner, that's what they call themselves, the Banner. They're mostly Scottish guys. But they, uh, they came to campus, and we just... I fell in love with their resources. They couldn't believe. They thought this whole way of looking at missions and doing missions died with John Payton and Adoniram Judson and Amy Carmichael, like that. That's a different era. And then when they found the school, we just, we fell in love with each other, so to speak. And so I recommend it because if our students have this bedrock of John Calvin and John Owen and Bunyan and... Lloyd-Jones and Amy Carmichael, and they have this, Lloyd-Jones is mandatory reading, not because he was a missionary, but because the things that Lloyd-Jones stood on, the things that made him different are things that are universal in missionaries in many ways. And so getting that into their DNA, these guys have a banner reading list. They get free resources, but they have to do two things. Number one, they have to take a picture so I can send it back to the banner guys and say, these are the guys that are reading your books. And number two, they have to promise to read it within a year. And then they can take any books out there. And so you've got some of them, their eyes are bigger than their stomach or their reading capacity. And over Christmas break, they're like every hour of the day trying to pound out some books. But you're getting that into their DNA. And then after Banner, the Nine Marks material is helpful. And there's, there's some other ones. But Banner, Head and Shoulders, just because the emphasis, and most of their books are written by dead guys. And so they're not going to lose their reputation in any sort of way. Yeah. So we have high school students or college students that are... uh, thinking about 
possibly missions. What, what three banner books immediately jump to mind? You say, oh, I'd love for you to read these. Uh, I mean, if they're looking at missions and they have zero exposure, like what I said yesterday, I would do the Peyton autobiography. The one I would do for pastors right now would be Revival and Revivalism. Great. That book and the lessons that it teaches, what is true, spirit-wrought revival, and what is conjuring up methods or methodologies to try and reverse engineer authentic revival into revivalism, that theology has worked its way into missions. And so that, I think, is good for pastoral leaders. Uh, the story of Amy it's by Carmichael. Ian Murray. Ian Murray, correct. Ian Murray has the other one by Amy Carmichael. That's a wonderful story, Beauty for Ashes, and just Amy Carmichael's zeal, how she stood against certain theological trends. Inerrancy was being chipped away, and she refused to give in to that. She caught a lot of fire because she was a single lady, but she held her ground. That's a wonderful resource. Um, there's another book that I think is important just for historical means. It's not necessarily a missions book, but Evangelicalism Divided. Yes. I think just to understand how did we end up in 2021 and these major figures from Schaefer to Billy Graham to Lloyd-Jones and to Packer and all these different figures, how do they fit into what we see today? And so it's not necessarily a missions book, but I think it's tremendously helpful. Agreed. Very good. Uh, if you think about these high school, college age students, et cetera, mm -hmm. and saying that, I, I'm, I may, uh, may consider missions. What would be some of the things that you would advise them now? Uh, they're, they haven't left the home yet, or they're mm -hmm. finishing a degree, and so haven't quite taken that next step yet. So what are some of the piece of the, uh, advice that you would give now and say, these are the things that I would encourage you to do as you're exploring this. Yeah, two things that I would recommend right off the bat not to do is number one, don't get enamored with short-term trips. Short-term trips have some value, but once you feel like this is the direction you're going, spend your time getting more involved in your local church. I'm amazed how many people want to get into missions and yet their church doesn't know them or they haven't made themselves known to their pastors, to their elders, to their leaders. Get involved here. Be a part of things. Love the older saints. Love the younger children. Be part of the fabric of a body before you go to plant a body somewhere. So don't major on the short-term trips and be careful of trying to find an agency or somewhere, somehow that you'll go. That'll work itself out in time. The thing that I would major on, I would start to know your Bible better, ask your pastors, ask your elders, what sort of classes should I take, formal, formal or informal? There's some great resources. Uh, I was hearing some today from RTS that you can get access to, Legionnaires, one that we recommend. What are the areas of theology that you need to brush up on? And I would major on ecclesiology and soteriology, the doctrine of the church and the doctrine of salvation. If you can get those two areas to where you can articulate yourself well, what is a New Testament church? Give me a definition in 45 seconds that you could lay out what is a New Testament church, what makes it up, and what is not a New Testament church. So kind of your barometer for what's accurate and what's not accurate is in there. And then I would start to look at, if they're going into missions, like what I was describing, I would start to look at how to get training. Like I mentioned on Saturday, the last places to reach are not the last ones by accident. It's mm -hmm. going to take some unique 
abilities and some training to get to those locations. And this is where I put forward Radius in many ways because it gives you those tools to where we have a lot of students that come in and when they pop out the back end, they go, I know there's challenges ahead. I know only God himself will be able to see us over these hurdles, but I have a framework for how to think about getting over those challenges. I know where I need to be, and so I can work on these things now. They just go into it much more educated. It's kind of like going in to your sophomore year of college. Your freshman year of college, you're a soup sandwich. You don't know where to go. You're eating too much food at the cafeteria. There's all sorts of problems. Your sophomore year, you're starting to get up to speed and you have some, some way to digest the information coming at you. That's good. So, so walk us through, you haven't done this this weekend, walk us through Radius. Hmm. Uh, what are the different programs? What does it look like? Uh, what are some of the things that you're doing to equip people before they head to the field? Yeah. So. Coming into Radius for the first semester, these guys, Sharon and Luke, by the way, wave your hands just so everybody can see. So these guys are in their second semester. Who went four by fouring in the, I mean, four wheel. That's uh, right. So Sharon's a valley girl from California. Oh. So this is the most snow she's ever seen in her life. Luke's a West Virginian who has seen snow, but I don't think he's ever gone with the four wheeler out in the snow. But anyways, they're living it up out here besides the times Excellent. that they're freezing. But. Um, so they're in their second semester, coming in for your first semester. The first few months are pretty tough, and that's intentional. The, we're going to take away their internet. They're going to have no social media. They'll get to send emails uh, on Sunday to their home church, to their family, and then they're off of uh, the internet for the rest of the time. They send emails on Sundays. They have early morning workouts where they have to get up and they have to do some level of calisthenics. There's going to be some body weight exercises so that they learn how to do exercise when they're in a foreign country. Healthier missionaries last longer. And so we're going to try and instill that into them. There's going to be a tremendous amount of reading. There's the optional reading, which I will push heavily from the front. I'll give a description of a book, why you should read it, why saints of old have read this book, how this could benefit you. And then there's the mandatory reading that they have to do. Then there's a lot of uh, peer review time where they're going to have to give book reports, presentations. They're going to go through every methodology that is out there today, from insider movements to the proclamational model to orality. Uh, obedience-based discipleship, person of peace, and they, along with some teammates, are going to get up and give a presentation to the entire student body and the and staff. And those are things that are of concerns in the mission field today. Some of them are of concern. Insider movements is a huge concern uh, under the big heading of disciple-making movements or church-planning movements. That's a tremendous concern today. But they're going to go through, and then proclamational teaching, I would be a huge advocate of that, but there has to be certain pillars in place before mm -hmm. that. And so they're going to go through a lot of that. Then during this whole time, they're in classes from one o'clock to, or excuse me, from eight o'clock to 12. And then from one o'clock to five, they're learning how to learn another language and they're applying that in Spanish. So they have to reach certain fluency levels in Spanish. We want to see them applying the techniques. That's the benefit of the school being down in Tijuana. They're not allowed to cross the border and go north. They go out, they, if they don't know any Spanish prior, they're pretty much just feeling their way around Tijuana. But we teach them techniques for acquiring language and culture. And then around the end of the first semester, they're starting to be able to navigate the city of Tijuana. They've made certain friendships. They're able to get around. They join 
rec leagues, they're a part of different organizations there, and they're starting to meet other possible believers in the context there. They come back for their second semester, and second semester is the big payoff. Now this isn't this big scary thing. Now they really start to excel in their Spanish studies and the things that they've been taught, they're coming together, they're pot potentially finding teammates among their classmates, so they're not going by themselves. They're finding, okay, these two families, I could work with them. What agency are they going with? Do they come from the same church background that I come from? Do they hold the same values? And they're getting ready to head off to the field. So it's kind of a, a lengthier process. Nine months is a significant amount of time, but the roots that they're able to put down and the discipline that they're able to develop, because here's the honest truth, if they can't do it in Tijuana, there's, they have no business going to Afghanistan, India, Indonesia, those types of places. Yes. So help us, talked a lot about unreached people groups. This is what you're aimed at with Radius and training these people so they can go to hmm. these places. Where, where are, if you had to say these geographically, these are where the people groups are that hmm. um, are unreached, where are some of the places that you would point to? Uh, okay, so you've got the general heading of the 1040 window. There's a lot of countries in there. Vietnam, Laos, some in Thailand. China and India are huge. Uh, North Africa, all those, those countries up in North Africa, and there's little pockets in the Middle East. Um, a lot to be done in Indonesia. Some of that's what, we used, to be what used to be called uh, West Papua, Irian Jaya, that area. You've got more isolated people groups. There's some in Latin America. You're talking about Brazil. Uh, further in there, but the, by God's grace, the Brazilian church is doing a great job. Mm. I mean, they're, they're really, they've done an exceptional job in reaching out to those minority language groups down there. But yeah, those would be the primary ones across the 1040 in North Africa. Good. All right. Our time's here about up. Let me, uh, let me say this. this has been a delight uh, to have you here. I mm. think what we appreciated from afar and what's been... Uh, wonderful up close as well. Uh, you and I talked about this the other night, but uh, it's Radius's emphasis upon the local church, uh, emphasis upon sound theology, mm -hmm. emphasis upon unreached people groups, uh, and it's been a great encouragement to have you here and, and to hear you, from you. Thank you. And we're looking forward to hearing from you here in a minute. All right. Okay. Let me pray for you and then we'll go into our service. Father, we are thankful. We're thankful that we've been able to hear good words over the course of this weekend. We are thankful that we have a mission that is set before us. We're thankful that you have given us your spirit and that you have given us your word. We're thankful that this is truly your work, and yet you choose to use sinners such as us to bring forth the light of salvation to the nations. And we are thankful that we know that this task shall be accomplished and mm. shall be completed because our King reigns. We do look forward to that day with great anticipation. We would desire to see more and more saved between now and then. And we desire to see every nation, tongue, and tribe truly reached with the truth of your word. We continue to pray that you would raise up a generation uh, that would see it as the great task before it, that there would be a missionary zeal within the church, 
that we would be willing to send our children and grandchildren, and that we would be willing to go ourselves. We do pray your blessing upon Radius International and Brooks in particular. Lord, would you continue to guide them, lead them, safeguard them? Would you keep always before the forefront of their mind the Lord Jesus Christ? And may you continue to give them a heart for the lost, keep them theologically sound, keeping close watch on their doctrine. And we pray as well for each of the workers that they would keep a close watch on their life as well. We want to see you glorified. That is our great goal. And that is our great end. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.